Good morning, everybody. This week we're in Daniel chapter 10. We're going to see what goes on behind the scenes. Now, when Jesus was baptized and he came up out of the water in the book of Mark, it says the sky was split or rent in two. Here, in a spiritual sense, the sky is being split because we're seeing what goes on behind the scenes. The battle that rages over the souls of men between good and evil, with God being on the throne and God being in control, but still there's a battle. And it's really, really interesting. So we're just going to pray and we'll get straight into it. Father, thank you for your great grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you that you have won the victory over Satan and all the powers of darkness when you died and rose again on the cross. Lord, you purchased us and this world back to you. And now it belongs to you, but you haven't come back to collect it yet. And so in the meantime, we have this struggle. But we have the victory at the same time. We can rest in your victory if we rest in you, if we abide in you. So I just pray that you help us to do that, Father, and not be devoured by the roaring lion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the vision of the glorious man. That's the title for this. In chapter 10 of Daniel, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message, and had understanding of the vision. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of upaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in colour, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigour was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, Understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand, and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. 
And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. So, here we have Daniel praying, and then an angel coming to give him a message. So let's start in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 3. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. So, here is Daniel. He's fasting, not fasting as in like a complete fast, but a partial fast, and pressing into God's presence. Now, how old is Daniel here? He's about 85 years old, roughly, okay? 85 years old. And if there's ever a time a person could say, I deserve a break, well, it could have been Daniel. It would have been Daniel. After all, he's been praying three times a day for how long? <laughs> 80 years, whatever it is. He's been cast into the lion's den. He's interpreted dreams and visions under intense pressure. If ever there was a time to relax, it would be now. A time to retire, it would be now. But Daniel didn't do this. Because at this time, he launches into another fast. For three full weeks, he sought the Lord with intensity. So basically, his fast was no pastries, no meat, and no wine. So we can fast from lots of different things. We can fast from TV. We can fast from the internet. We can fast from social media. We can fast from food. We can fast from chocolate. We can fast from whatever we want to fast from. So in the third year of Cyrus, now by this time, the first wave of exiles had returned under the leadership of Ezra. So basically, if you read Ezra chapters 1 and 2, the decree had been given to rebuild the temple, and the people who wanted to could go home. The exiles could go home, just like God had promised. And also in verse 1 it says, The message was true, but the appointed time was long. And so this chapter is actually setting the stage for chapter 11, where a message is given, a prophecy is given, which talks about great persecution and testing for the people of Israel. It's going to be difficult for Israel. We'll get into that more next week. 
and mourning for three full weeks. Now, why was he mourning? Why was he fasting? Why did he go into this intensive prayer time for three weeks? Well, there's a couple of reasons that people have thought of, but we don't really know. But one of the reasons is that only 49,000 Jews went back. Now, out of an entire nation, that's not many people. A lot of people would have probably stayed in Babylon because they were quite comfortable there. And that's a picture of us being comfortable in the world. And Daniel's mourning about that. So few Jews were willing to make the sacrifice and go home. A reason he didn't go back with them is probably because he's too old. And maybe he could serve them better from his high position in government um, than he could with them in Jerusalem. And verse 4, Now on the 24th day of the month, as I was by the side of the great river, the Tigris, and there's this man clothed in linen, and there's this description, His waist is girded with the gold of Upaz, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in colour, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. So, who is this man? Who is this being? Well, some people say it's Jesus. Some people say it's an angel of high rank. The reason some people say it's Jesus is because if you look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, the description is similar to that of Jesus. But, I believe it's an angel because if you go down to verse 13, this angel says he needed the assistance of Michael to overcome a demon, a demon prince. I can't see Jesus needing assistance of an angel to overcome a demon prince. He has complete power over them. And also in Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 2, he sees angelic figures clothed in linen as well. So you can make up your own mind as whether this is Jesus or whether it's just a an angel of high rank. And going on to verse 7, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they hid themselves. So, the companions, they could feel that something was going on. They could feel the presence of this angel, or the angels, as we're going to find out. And they ran away. So the effect of being in the presence of someone who is perfect, of someone who is powerful, is intense. John in Revelation, he went to worship the angel, remember that? And I want to draw a comparison here between this situation and Saul on the road to Damascus. Remember Saul, his name was later changed to Paul. Now, there's light came from heaven and a voice spoke. But if you read in Acts, put the verses together from two different places, his companions could hear something but could not understand what the voice said. So Paul could hear and understand. They could hear but not understand. And so, very similar. They could feel that something's going on and they ran away and they fell to the ground, etc. And there's an application here. We can be close to the presence and power of God, yet miss the message through lack of spiritual perception. We need to be abiding to get that understanding. And verse 8, 
Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me. So he sees this angel, this vision, this glorious man, as they call it, whether it be an angel or Jesus, we're not sure. And he just goes weak. My vigor was turned to frailty. And the meaning of that word is a death-like paleness combined with a grotesque wrenching of facial features like agony, oh, you know, weakness, like death warmed up. And why? Why did no strength remain in Daniel? Why was his vigor, his strength turned to frailty? Well, he's undone by this vision of the glorious man. And this tells us that even the holiest of all men, and Daniel is a very holy man, a very godly man, we all fall short before God and before his angels, which are all perfectly holy. Sin is vile and disgusting in the sight of God. Now, I want to just refer to another experience that somebody else had, somebody else's testimony, and this is a testimony of Isaiah. And we're going to read it in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. But a bit of um, background here. In Isaiah chapters 1 to 5, Isaiah is getting messages from God, and he's telling all these nations around, woe to you, woe to you, because you've disobeyed. You've done this, you've done that. God's going to judge you. Suddenly, Isaiah sees the Lord, and this is what happens. So, Isaiah 6, 1-7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, or angels. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. So think about why Isaiah felt so fearful, small, and overwhelmed. He was in the presence of holiness and purity, perfection. So whether it be an angel or Jesus, when we are exposed to pure righteousness and holiness, our filthy rags righteousness is revealed for what it really is. We see ourselves for who we really are, our sinful nature. Only then do we see a real need, the need to be forgiven and cleansed to have somebody pay the penalty for our sins. Now, what did the angel do? He took a coal from the altar. What does the altar represent? It's a place of sacrifice. It's a picture of the payment of our sins that Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross. Now, why didn't Isaiah recognize this before? His own sinfulness, his own depravity before 
the perfect and holy God. He's just spent five chapters proclaiming judgment against various nations. Well, our hearts deceive us. If we go to Jeremiah seventeen nine to 10 it says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. This is our sinful nature. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. So because of this deception, it's also called pride, where we make ourselves out to be better or more righteous than we really are, then we don't really see our need for salvation, or we don't see our need for God's help. And here's an illustration to help us understand this. Let's just pretend you've won a holiday to New Zealand and you're driving along and you've got these beautiful green hills and you see some sheep and you think to yourself, wow, those sheep look really white, really clean. And so you go to your hotel and then the next day you've got to come back along that same road but it's been snowing overnight and as you're driving along, suddenly the mountains are just dazzling white with the sun shining on them. You snow, pure snow. And the sheep, well, they're all grey and dirty. And you go, those sheep are disgusting. The day before, you thought they were really good because it was a green background. It was a dirty background. But against a perfect background, they look really dirty. And so it is the same with us. When we compare ourselves with others, we can look pretty good. But when we compare ourselves to Jesus, who is perfect, oh boy. Now, imagine the horror of the unsaved when they finally stand in the presence of the Holy God at the great white throne judgment. And for the first time in their existence, they finally see how wretched they are. All the pride and pretense is gone, burned away by the sheer beauty and holiness of God. And their sin and their sinful condition is seen in all its ugliness and depravity. On the other hand, imagine the relief and appreciation that we Christians will experience when we stand before the beamer seat, that is, the judgment of rewards, as we realize what we have been saved from. So we have a partial understanding now, yes, I'm a sinner, I need to be forgiven. But I'll tell you what, when we get to the other side, our appreciation and our understanding, I believe, is going to be so much more and our love for the Lord will be so much deeper. But right now, in this life, we can help ourselves to understand our predicament and what God has done for us and how much he loves us by meditating on the scriptures that tell us what he has already done for us. So I'm just going to read a couple of them here. The first one is Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. It says, Once we, too, were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. Think of Cain murdering Abel, the first generation back then. But when God our Saviour revealed his kindness and love, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth 
and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of His grace, He made us right in His sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. So that's Paul's message to Titus. He's saying, I insist that you teach this. It's beneficial for everyone. Why? So that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. Why? Because as we understand his love, we will respond to it. We will want to serve him with a love attitude, a love motive. And just to reinforce this point, I'm going to read similar verses from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Notice the spiritual warfare going on here. Verse 3 in Ephesians. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Remember Jeremiah? Our heart is desperately wicked. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Now, if it stopped there, it would be a pretty nasty place. But it says, but, and I'm really thankful for that word, but. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead, along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ Jesus. Verse 7, So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. I'm going to read that verse 7 again. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So this is a theme repeated again and again in the scriptures, and especially in the epistles. And it's this. Love and appreciation for God's goodness toward us causes us to want to repent and obey. It's not I got to, it's I get to. So love and appreciation for God's goodness towards us causes us to want to repent and obey. 
It's not I got to, it's I get to. And here's how it works. Usually in the first half of the epistle or letter, God shows us how much he's done for us. And then in the second half of the epistle or letter, God then tells us how he expects us to live. Why does he spend so much time telling us what he's done for us before he tells us what he expects us to do for him? Well, he wants us to serve out of a sense of love and thankfulness and not of a sense of duty. He wants us to serve him with an attitude of love and appreciation. So it changes our attitude from, I have to do this because God said so, to, I want to obey God because he freed me from the old life of slavery to sin. I am so thankful that I would do anything for him. There is nothing I wouldn't give up for him because there is nothing that he didn't give up for me. He gave it all, including his very life. So in other words, the more I understand how much God loves me, as demonstrated by what Jesus did for me on the cross, the more I will love and appreciate him in return. Think about the following verses. Romans 5.8 But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And 1 John 4.19 We love him because he first loved us. Now, is this just a New Testament thing or was love the motive God was looking for in the Old Testament as well? Well, Psalm 116 tells us. It's an awesome psalm. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It's basically Ephesians in the Old Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, back put in the Old Testament. It's fantastic. Psalm 116, 1-19. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my prayer for mercy, because he bends down to listen. I will pray as long as I have breath. Death wrapped its ropes around me. The terrors of the grave overtook me. I saw only trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Please, Lord, save me. How kind the Lord is. How good he is. So merciful, this God of ours. Isn't that cool? So merciful, this God of ours. The Lord protects those of childlike faith. I was facing death, and he saved me. Let my soul be at rest again, for the Lord has been good to me. He has saved me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And so I walk in the Lord's presence as I live here on earth. I believed in you, so I said, I am deeply troubled, Lord. In my anxiety I cried out to you, these people are all liars. What can I offer the Lord for all he has done for me? That's a good question, isn't it? What can I offer? He sang a song about that this morning. This is my offering. Verse 13 is the answer to this question. What can I offer the Lord for all he has done for me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and praise the Lord's name for saving me. I will keep my promises to the Lord in the presence of all his people. So we praise God for what he's done and keep our promises, our vows to the Lord. In other words, obedience. The next bit. The Lord cares deeply when his loved ones die. O Lord, I am your servant. Yes, I am your servant, born into your household. You have freed me from my chains. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. 
I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the house of the Lord, in the heart of Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So, verse 12, what can I offer the Lord for all he has done to me? Well, we can't repay, so don't even try. We can't pay it back. But the proper, logical, thankful response is to want to give back. Think about someone who saved you from a certain death by drowning. You're in the ocean and you're drowning and someone picks you out of the water just before you die. And you're safe and you're healthy again. You can never pay them back because you owe them your life. But instead, your response is to be thankful and what you're willing to do for them indicates how thankful you are to them. Now, I want to tell you a little story. There's a 14-year-old boy named Jim Boswell. And the plate was going around, you know, the offering plate. Put your money in the offering plate. And uh, you know what he did? He said, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And he put the offering plate on the ground and he put himself in the offering plate. So that's Jim Boswell at 14 years old. That's his response to what Jesus had done for him. So acts of surrender or dying to self are the anticipated response or the logical, reasonable response to discipleship or following Christ. And we go to Romans 12, verse 1 in the Amplified. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you in view of all the mercies of God. He's appealing to us in view of all the mercies of God to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, logical, intelligent service and spiritual worship. So, so clear. I appeal to you in view of the mercy of God, His grace, His kindness toward us, that you give yourselves to Him, that you sacrifice for Him. Not because you have to, but in view of His mercy. It's a logical, reasonable, rational thing to do. Now someone said, we should all be on fire. If not, we are cold. We should all be responding to this. Now, how does what Jesus has done for us affect the way we treat each other? So we've looked at our relationship with God. Now let's look at our relationship with each other. First John 4, 9-11, it says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, verse 11, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Isn't that amazing? Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. So the motive for loving other people and serving other people is not because we have to, but because God has loved us, so we should love each other. And it doesn't get any clearer than this. The barometer which reveals how much we truly understand the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us, how much he loves us, the kindness he showed to us, is revealed by how much we love him, our devotional life, our prayer, Bible reading, 
and by the way we treat others, if we love them sacrificially or don't love them sacrificially. So the understanding here we're talking about is not head knowledge, it's heart knowledge, it's heart understanding. You can have an intellectual knowledge of what Jesus did, but still have a hard heart. In fact, many people understand what Jesus did, but refuse it. They hear the gospel and they refuse it. It's only as we respond by faith, and by faith spend time in God's presence, that the Holy Spirit reveals to us who God is and his heart toward us, and helps us to understand the magnitude, the greatness of what he's done for us. So it's all about faith and trust. That's why faith, hope, and love all go together. Now, a good prayer to pray is, Lord, please reveal to me how much you love me. Please help me to appreciate you. And then prayerfully read and meditate on some of the many scriptures that describe what God has done for us. And we've read some of them already today. So going into verse 10 in Daniel 10. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved. Wow. So he's weak, Daniel's weak, he's laid out, and he's strengthened by the touch of a hand. So angels have this ministry of strengthening and encouraging. Jesus, in his incarnation, when he became a man, was also helped and encouraged by angels in his temptation and weakness twice. Once when he's in the garden, and before that when he was being tempted for 40 days. And, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, in verse 10 there, this is the second time that Daniel was called greatly beloved. We read this last week in Daniel 9.23. And each time it's just before he's given a significant prophecy, a revelation of the future. And we talked previously about how God will only reveal himself to those who are seeking him. So as we seek to know God more, then he reveals his love to us. And verse 12, then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. Notice that, to humble yourself before your God. But also here, from the first day, your words were heard. Now, does God hear our prayers? Absolutely. From the first day, your words were heard. So God responded to Daniel's prayer the very moment he made his request. So Daniel had been in great and serious prayer for how long? Verse 2 says three full weeks. That's 21 days. And then in verse 12 again it says, I have come because of your words. So Daniel prayed and this powerful angel is dispatched, is sent because of Daniel's prayer. And this is another one of the many reminders in the book of Daniel that prayer matters. Prayer doesn't just change us but it also puts God's plan into action. How awesome it is to be a part of God's work. If I don't pray, then God will have to find someone else. And myself, my family, and my church will miss out on the blessings that could have been. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. So this is not talking about a human. A human cannot stand up to an angel. We're talking about the prince, an angelic being, an evil angelic being, a demon, opposing the work of God, opposing the word of God coming to Daniel. 
And in the New Testament, it tells us that these angels and demons are organized into various ranks. And for example, it's Ephesians 6, 12 to 13. It says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. So today we are a part of the same battle. It's good to remember that our enemy is much stronger than us, but much weaker than God. (laughs) Okay, Our enemy, Satan, is much stronger than us, but much weaker than God. And our main weapons against the enemy is prayer and the word of God. And James gives us a simple instruction on how to defeat Satan. James 4, 7. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now what did the angel say that Daniel was doing? He was humbling himself. You have humbled yourself before your God. So Daniel humbled himself. He resisted the devil. And what did the devil have to do? Flee. And the good angel came and attended to him. Now, Matthew 5.3, one of the Beatitudes. Just to highlight this attitude that we need to have in prayer and in our whole lives concerning our need for Jesus. It says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Or in a different version, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit is us humbling ourselves and realizing our weakness and therefore our need for him. Now, one last thought concerning these demonic entities while we're talking about it. Satan is called the prince of this world three times. Three times Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. And it's John 12, 31, 14, 30 and 16, verse 11. So Jesus has won the battle, but he's not yet come back to claim the victory. Until he does, the fight continues. Always remember, though, that Satan and his hordes have been defeated so that as Christians, we can always choose to share the victory that Christ has already won over the forces of darkness if we abide in Christ. Now, the angel says that this demonic prince of the Medes and the Persians withstood me for 21 days. What would have happened if Daniel had stopped praying on day 20? What do you think would have happened if Daniel stopped praying on day 20? Do you think that he would have got through? Remember that it's a prayer that causes things to happen. A quote from Guzik, The correlation between Daniel's time of self-denial and prayer and the duration of the battle between the angels and the prince of the kingdom of Persia establishes a link between Daniel's prayer and the angelic victory. Since the angelic victory came on the 21st day, we can surmise that if Daniel would have stopped praying on the 20th day, the answer may not have come. What's the message here? We need to be persistent in our prayers. Now, Michael, who's Michael? He's one of the chief princes. He came to help me. And Michael is associated with the battle between good angels and evil angels in Revelation 12 and Jude 9, especially in regard to Israel. 
Now I have come. Why was the delay here? God obviously has power over the enemy. Why did God allow the enemy to oppose and hinder, delay this powerful good angel from getting to Daniel for 21 days? Well, God was continuing to develop Daniel as a man of persistent prayer. God was strengthening Daniel's faith. In those verses it says, What will happen to your people in the latter days? This is talking not just end times, but also in the time of the Grecian Empire, so about 300 years in the future. And in chapter 11 we're going to see Antiochus Epiphanes again. And he's a part of the Grecian Empire. Now verse 15. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And then the angel strengthens him. Now the word sorrows there, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me. The ancient Hebrew word translated sorrows has the thought of twisting or writhing in pain. And it's used in several places in the Old Testament for labor pains in childbirth. So Daniel was so severely affected by this vision that he could barely breathe, much less understand the ins and outs of the prophecy to be given. And so, one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. So, again, the angel strengthens Daniel. And verse 20, Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. Notice that, scripture of truth. Then he finishes with, No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince, your prince, the prince for Israel. Also in the first year of Darius and Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So that was 11 verse 1. That's the end of that section. So I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. So what's this saying? Daniel's about to get the answer to his prayer, but the battle's not over for these angels. These heavenly messengers are going back to battle, and he's got to keep fighting this spiritual warfare against the prince of Persia. And then when the Persians are defeated by the Grecians, the Greeks, then he's got to fight the demonic entity that's behind the Grecian Empire, the next world empire. So God is watching out for Israel, working behind the scenes in the spiritual world, just like he does for us. Now, for me, This is kind of exciting. This is, wow, this should invigorate us in our prayer lives. The battle for souls is taking place over thousands of years and won't finish until the second coming of Jesus, the consummation of all things. So let's get our eyes off ourselves and realize what is really going on behind the scenes, the battle for the very souls of men. Let's get our spiritual gloves on and get into the ring by prayer. Let's sharpen our sword and learn how to use it properly. And we read this verse in Bible study the other day. I want to read it again. It's Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. It's talking about our swords, the word of God. It says, There is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others instead You need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, 
who through training have the skill to recognise the difference between right and wrong. So we need to understand how to use the Word of God. We need to be reading it and applying it. It's through training, it's through putting it into practice. So the battle isn't over. The angel says, I'm here to share with you, Daniel, but now I have to go back because the battle goes on. The war is never over until Jesus comes back. We need to keep praying until Jesus comes back. It continues in the heavenly arena. The light Gabriel had to keep on fighting, so did we. We can't afford to kick back. And I want to give you three reasons why we can't afford to kick back. The first one is, like Daniel, he loved his country. Only very few of them went back. Why? Because over the 70 years, the Jews became quite a home in the world in Babylon. This place full of idols, they became quite a home in this wicked place. And seeing the people comfortable in this worldly place, being carnal Christians, if you want to say that, carnal Jews, it broke Daniel's heart. He wanted to see them back worshipping God in the temple. But no, they were comfortable in the world, even though they had the chance to go back home and worship at the temple. I wonder what the Lord sees in Australian Christianity. You know, Daniel's looking at his own people. What about us? Why should I worry about going to prayer meeting Sunday morning or the weekly Bible study, we ask? Why should I worry about fasting like I used to? Daniel loved his country, and yet he saw so few who were interested in restoring the nation. So as an 85-year-old man, he said, I'm going to fast and pray on behalf of those people who have grown so comfortable in the world. So the Lord didn't say, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and vote, (laughs) I will heal the land. Nor did he say, if my people will humble themselves and petition, I will heal the land. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal the land. That's 2 Chronicles 7.14. So we need to pray for our nation. There's a battle going on. Remember to pray for our leaders. Now, the second reason we can't afford to kick back and relax and take ourselves out of this fight is because of our families. The demons never let up, and they will go after our kids if they see that our kids are vulnerable. Job, the most righteous man on the face of the earth in his day, rose early each morning and offered sacrifices on behalf of each of his kids. He knew his kids were being pressured, and so he'd rise daily, sacrifice, and intercede. Job knew God. He understood spiritual reality. And he knew he couldn't afford to cruise to kick back and relax. Remember, Satan is a roaring lion. Therefore, as parents, if we love our kids, we can't just kick back and pray occasionally and be uncommitted to church. Our kids will be eaten up. Dads, we are priests in the home. Mum, you're recovering. So don't take it easy or your kids will pay the price. Now the third reason that we can't just kick back and relax and and not engage in this spiritual battle by prayer and putting the word into practice is for ourselves. We make ourselves an easy target. Now, Deuteronomy 25, 17, 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. So the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt and the stragglers, the ones who are kind of, oh, can't bother keeping up, 
you know, we'll just sit back here and take it easy. Well, guess who was attacked? Not the people in the front, not the front lines. No, it was the people who were cool about spiritual things, the people who were straggling, lagging behind, not fervent in their spiritual walk, so to speak. So, you know, you may not care about your country, you may not have a family, but if you have a kickback kind of Christianity, you'll get picked off personally. The front lines, again, the front lines aren't where the casualties are. It's when you start dropping back in your intensity, when you start giving up in your ministry, that you are in danger of being devoured. Now, someone might say, if God is so good and powerful, why doesn't he just wipe out the demons and attack us? Well, he will eventually. But right now, they're serving a purpose. Think of it this way. If you see someone at the gym and they've got this massive you know, weights on the bar and they're lifting it, straining, you go and take the weights off him? Are you helping that person? No, because by their straining against those weights, they're actually getting stronger. It's the lifting that gives him the strength. And that's the purpose the enemy is fulfilling. Yes, he causes things to get heavy, but the Lord uses him, Satan and his demons, as a weight to strengthen us, to teach us how to press in and be strong. Our Father knows we need strength and stamina, endurance and experience for what's ahead, so he allows us to struggle. But remember this, 1 Corinthians 10.13, He will never give us more than we can handle, and there will always be a way out. Remember what Peter said? 1 Peter 1.6-7, So be truly glad, there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as the fire tests and purifies gold though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Therefore, embrace the struggle and keep going. Don't give up. Become like Daniel. Even when you're 85 years old, keep up with your devotional life, your spiritual discipline, your study, your prayer. Don't forsake assembling with other believers, Hebrews 10.25. Don't become a Babylonian, so to speak, caught up in your business, your hobbies. Instead, say, I will continue on because there's too much at stake. And in those last couple of verses there, it said, No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. So Michael, this powerful angel, battling against the demonic representative of Persia and any other who oppose God's people, Israel. Now, I want to draw an analogy here. On earth, Israel seemed lowly and weak. But in the heavens, in the angelic realm, Israel had the mightiest representative of all. So the same, I believe, is true for us. We might seem small and weak, but individually and as a church, we don't fight this battle alone. I was thinking of it like this. We are like the foot soldiers in on the battlefield. When we see trouble coming, we radio for help, and the air cover roars over, the planes roar over, they drop those bombs on those enemies in front of us, and they're obliterated, they're they're destroyed. So as Christians, we have incredible spiritual resources. There is no excuse for us to lose any battle. The only time I lose is when I choose not to fight, when my focus changes from Christ to myself. 
when my sinful nature is on the throne of my heart instead of Jesus, then the battle is lost. So remember what James said, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The first step to winning is losing. The first step to winning is losing. What are you losing? Losing my own life, my own desires, meaning that I must die to self. This is what it means to submit to God. We can either place our feet on the neck of the roaring lion, Satan, sharing in Christ's victory over that roaring lion, the devil, who is a great enemy, who prowls about looking for someone to devour, or we will be devoured by this roaring lion. Now, who do you think this enemy, our enemy, wants to devour? It's us. It's Christians. He can't take away our salvation, but he can rob us of our reward and our joy by causing us to neglect our relationship with God. And not only that, but he wants to reduce our families and churches into disaster zones by causing us to fight against each other. True, genuine unity is so sweet, but it is only experienced as a fruit of the Spirit. And fruit only comes as we abide in Christ. So unity in the church and unity in the family cannot be manufactured. It has to come from abiding in Christ. So listen, if our family is a disaster zone, if everyone is fighting in harmony, intimacy, our distant memories, then fix the root cause. Don't focus on the symptoms. Get back to your first love. Get back to abiding in the vine. Get back to feeding on Jesus. Get on your knees, get into the Word, and get into fellowship. Be honest about your spiritual condition, because our pride will keep us separated from God if we're not. And I'm just going to finish with a quote from John Corson, which kind of summarizes this. It says, There are demons at work, gang. We are not wrestling against people, against flesh and blood. It's not your boss's personality, your husband's insensitivity, or your wife's inadequacies that are irritating you. Rather, there are demons in place that are causing all kinds of irritations, improper evaluations, and very real frustrations and temptations. If you're wrestling or fighting against people, you're fighting the wrong battle. It's the demons you need to war against. It's not flesh and blood, as you read in Ephesians 6. So, Father, there's so much in this chapter, spiritual warfare, Lord, it's all about what's going on in the heavenlies. It's not just about what we see with our eyes. There's a lot more to it. Help us to be engaged in the battle, using the weapons that you have given us, faithfully and fervently and accurately, Lord. Help us to understand our word. Help us to be putting what we learn into practice. Help us to be fervent in our prayer life, to make the time to pray, to make the time to read your word. Lord, it's not going to be easy, we're not always going to want to, but we must, for the sake of our country, for the sake of our families, and for the sake of ourselves individually. So, Lord, please, I pray that you be glorified in us individually, in us, in our families, and in us as a church. Help us to be persistent in our prayers. And, Lord, increase our faith, we pray, and increase our love for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.